Welcome to the Pretty Intense Podcast. Continuing with my fascination of the theme of the universe and reality and are there extraterrestrials out there? Jill Tarter is on the show. She was a former director of the SETI Institute, which is the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. She inspired the Jodie Foster role in the movie Contact, one of my top five movies. It kind of led me to her and um, just listening to her speak and her general search for extraterrestrials and are we alone? I mean, that is a big question in my mind. So we had a, a really interesting conversation. We didn't talk about whether or not it's true because she's not into giving her an opinion, but we talked about the facts. We talked about what's actually being done, the technology, what could be received from another planet or another star versus also what we're putting out there. We could receive a message and how we are continuing to evolve the technologies that it takes to receive a message and the timeliness of it. Discovery Magazine said that she is one of the most important women in science. I feel like I was just talking to a legend. Enjoy the show. Please hit subscribe and the like button and let me know. Are we alone in the comments? Are we looking for the right thing with us? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, you search what is one of the most fascinating things to me. I have looked up to the sky from the time I was really young and just like it's the only it's the thing that gives me a headache because I think it goes on for infinity. But then what's at the end of there's nothing. It goes. It keeps going. There must be an end. But what would that be? And is that like what you used to think when you were a kid, when you looked up to the sky? No, when I looked up to the sky as a kid, I looked up and I thought, one of those stars, there's going to be a planet and there's going to be some little kid on that planet walking along with their parent and seeing seeing our star in their sky, our sun as a star in their sky. And they're going to be wondering whether anybody is up there looking at them. I agree with you. I I my opinion being that there's no way we're alone. Like it's, there's way too much. It's an awful waste of space. Yes. Are those actually your words? No, no, they're the, they're the screenwriters. Was the scene of you walking with your dad in the movie part of your, part of your con contribution or cause when you said that, that's immediately what I thought is that that was a scene in the movie. Yes. Yeah. That's really cool. How did that even come about? That's so interesting. I think we just got a phone call. I knew Carl was writing the book. I told Carl about this experience that I'd had. Just after I got my PhD, I went to a meeting in Washington. I think it was the American Association of Women in Science that sponsored it. Anyway, I walked into a room full of 80 women, 80 really smart, clever women. And it, it just was a life-changing event. Having been the only woman in 300 of my engineering class, I had just gotten used to walking into rooms full of men, walking into this room full of women who were all bright and smart and, and um, talented. It was spectacular. We swapped stories of how we managed to make it through the pipeline when so many others didn't. Many of the women, overwhelming number of the women, their dads were the biggest influence in their life. And that was my case, right? Unfortunately, my dad died when I was young. He died when I was 12. One of the things I learned from that was this carpe diem idea. Mm. You know, don't put off asking a question of your father till tomorrow because he might not be there. And it's amazing how many of the other women had the similar kind of experience. 
Were there questions that you wish you would have asked? Oh, sure. Infinite number. <laughs> you know, <laughs> how do I make it through this life? How do I, how do I deal with yeah, all the challenges that will be coming, right? <laughs> I didn't know enough to ask, to ask those then. I mean, you know, you say that and how do you make it through this life? And, you know, there's a lot of esoteric thoughts that go through my mind and people I speak to. And I don't know if that is the same for you, but so many people will reply with, I don't want to come back next time. Next time around, I'm not doing this. It's too hard. <laughs> do you believe in that sort of idea that you come back again? I don't think so. I, I, but I don't have any scientific data to um, support it or refute it. It just doesn't seem to be um, a mindset that is comfortable for me. Is that is that represent is that true? How scientifically based you are with everything that you believe in is that it really does need to come down to science? Is that is that the real you? Yeah, that's what I'm comfortable with. Yes, I mean, truly, my my favorite part in the movie is the scene of asking to prove love um, for your dad. And uh, I really like, that was just such a, I, I never forgot that scene. Um, so how would you explain love then? I mean, I'm just, might as well ask you, you know, if you can't prove love, how do you know? How, how, but it still exists, right? It exists. And I don't know why you have to prove it. Um, it it's an emotion that sometimes you're lucky enough to be able to experience and share. And therefore, it's an emotion. It isn't science. Um, so I don't know why you don't just appreciate it and live with it. Does that not apply then when it comes to the question of are we alone? And that can you just believe it without proof? No, the are we alone question requires uh, an extraordinary amount of evidence to be able to a infer that that's what you've that you found evidence for someone else's technology that's what we're trying to do mm -hmm. and be then interpret that evidence and um, using a lot of other expertise that i don't particularly have but i think if that problem were posed there would be no lack of individuals and organizations who would try to figure out what it was that we were actually finding 2016, I think it was, where there were multiple claims of detection of extraterrestrial intelligence. There were much better explanations for each of the claims in the end. And I've been since then sort of on a hobby horse reminding people that back in the 80s at the International Academy of Astronautics and the International Institute of Space Law, we developed a set of principles um, regarding actions following the detection of extraterrestrial intelligence and oh, really keep trying to remind people of those principles and how how to do a search and how to get confirmation of what you've found and how to tell the world and i think if i recall back in the 80s the the motivation for constructing this set of principles was the fact that our Soviet colleagues in the former Soviet Union were doing SETI searches. We were concerned that if they should be successful, they would be prevented from sharing that information. So we developed this set of principles. And one of the things that says number eight is, you know, make sure that 
you know what you've got and then tell the world. When you think about this and you think about the technology that we have now, which we didn't have in the 1980s, there are better ways of searching, ways of searching that lend themselves to confirmation and verification and validation. Oh, really? Um, Like using two telescopes and finding the same thing in both telescopes with the right time delays between them. Mm. Um, So that's, that's sort of where I'm spending my time and effort now, that and trying to build an endowment because we now deeply understand that this may be a multi-generational search effort. Mm. And so it might be my great-granddaughter that succeeds right. eventually in finding evidence of someone else's technology. Right. And so we have to find a way to keep not huge amounts of funding, but mm-hmm. at least dependable funding year upon year, generation yeah. after generation. And of course, universities figured out how to do that millennia ago, right? Mm-hmm. They developed mm-hmm. endowments. That's a big undertaking. It is, but it's worth it. I mean, you always want the best and the brightest, right? Mm -hmm. People to be joining you and you always have to recruit your replacements. And so the recruiting job is is somewhat difficult because you can't promise success. And most young scientists and engineers want to say, well, in my career, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. And I'm going to be Mm -hmm. well rewarded and famous for that. And of course, I can't say that. In fact, I have to say, hmm, well, yeah, you can make it famous, but I'm not sure I can make payroll at the end of the month. <laughs> and they're like, hmm, yeah. how much of a passion project is this? If you Do you really believe that there's life out there? It actually doesn't matter what I believe, right? This is science. And so it matters what I can prove. If I told you I knew the answer, that would be religion and not science. So what I believe doesn't matter. What I can find through scientific exploration does matter. What do you want to find? When I visited Egypt, I was introduced to an expert aromacologist who explained the healing powers of various scents. I returned home with 18 bottles of powerful essences that unlocked specific feelings and had all sorts of healing properties. I became inspired to find a functional way to deliver them in a new consumer lifestyle product. Candles became my medium. Voyant means seer, a reference to the inner eye chakra one of the key energy points in the body essential to wellness and healing. Voyant is a doorway to openness and imagination, a catalyst in our daily journey. Whether you're connecting with others or enjoying alone time, Voyant strives to beautify the home and the soul to create a haven of peace and joy. The candle is delivered with a beautiful monogram 12-ounce stemless wine glass, which can be used after the wax is gone. My limited edition candle collection is available exclusively at voyantbydanica.com. Well, it's a big question, and I'd like to know what other ways there are to make a biology and to make a technology, or is us and what happened here the only way it can manifest? Seems unlikely. Don't know the answer to that right? We can, we can look at now. I mean, our tools are getting better all the time. We're building Mm -hmm. bigger telescopes. We're building all kinds of spacecraft for exploration. Um, 
I know we we've got the rovers on Mars that are uh, caching rock samples to be picked up later and mm-hmm. to be showing that really earlier on Mars was wet and warm and salty. Wow. And might have been a place where life could get started. I interviewed Brian Cox. He thought that by taking core samples from Mars, that maybe it would leave, it would give us some kind of understanding as to how we came about. And my question was, it might've just come about just the way that we're going to Mars and taking a core sample that like life came from somewhere else and went, oh, let's just see what's going on over here. And that it, it seems like the most likely, most likely scenario that it happened just the same. Well, that's that, uh, that idea is often called panspermia, mm-hmm. that life came from somewhere else and seeded uh, life here. And what would not necessarily disprove, but at least make less likely that story would be if we found a biology that was totally independent from life as we know it. I mean, because all life that we currently know is related and based on the same kind of biology Mm -hmm. and um, molecular coding. Mm -hmm. If we found a totally independent uh, biology, then that would make it less likely that Mm. were clones of or seeds from someplace else. I, I, as I said, I'm very fascinated with this realm. Um, So uh, I also spoke to Neil deGrasse Tyson uh, quite a while ago. And I asked him, are we looking for the wrong thing? Like if we're looking for ourselves, and he said what you said that we are made of the most common, most common elements in the universe. So it's, it just seems natural to look for something of ourself, but uh, I don't know how comfortable you are with opinions, but in your opinion, do you think that that's, do you agree with that? And do you think that there is a chance that looking for um, biology that is just like us or a, a human-esque like entity is actually um, all there could be out there? Or is there other, other, I mean, with even within our visual and audio spectrum, like we hear and see such a small sliver of it. So what about the potential that by looking for us, we're not looking for everything? Well, we're certainly not looking for everything, right? <laughs> when we look True. for life yes. as we know it. Um, and, but the, the other side of that coin is we're looking for what we can. We're looking for what our technology allows us to look for. Yeah. And we don't know how to look for zeta rays or some other physics or biology that we haven't yet uncovered. So there is a limitation. And this is the 21st century, and we're using the tools that we have at our disposal. Mm-hmm. Um, someday we'll be able to do other things, but right now we're doing what we can. And the thing that um, I think will help answer this question about is there only one way to make life is um, synthetic biology that is now taking place in the lab. I used to say, we're never going to answer this question about what is um, necessary and what is contingent for life until we found a second independent example. But now in the lab, I think we are exploring these questions and we may be able to come up with an irreducible set of requirements for, for life. 
and that it just can't be any other way. You've got to start with that and then you can elaborate on it in many different ways. But I'm so I'm, I'm eager to see what comes out of those studies. So would that be the progression you're, that you're referring to about transitioning more to AI and robots and other forms of essentially intelligence that could populate other places in the universe? That it starts with humans or something like a human and has sort of an intelligent progression? Well, something has to invent the robot, right? The robot didn't put itself together. Right. So at some time, maybe no longer, but at some time, there was something that could build a robot. And then the robots got really smarter than the, the maker and they progressed faster because their evolutionary timescale is not the biological evolution that we have to deal with, but they can reinvent themselves and build the next generation much faster and, and uh, with more capability than biology can. So how do you feel about that? Do you, are you comfortable? Like I, does that, I think this scares a lot of people, you know, it scares me to some degree, like transitioning out of human body. And then I think about consciousness and the, what is that? And, and how does that overlay? It scares me a little. Yeah. Well, what I'm comfortable about is that people are asking these questions, right? <laughs> we're beginning to think about it and we're beginning to think about how do you constrain machine intelligence? How do you uh, make sure that it has the right set of principles and doesn't deviate from them. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I don't have answers to those questions. All I can say is that people are beginning to ask the questions, which mm -hmm. does make me comfortable because going, just going out, you know, looking for this, um, extraordinarily brilliant singleton, um, without thinking about, constraining is not the right way to push ahead. So I'm glad, again, I'm comfortable with the fact that people are beginning to talk about it, looking for answers. No, I don't have any answers yet. What do you think the best and worst case scenario is? As far as I understand it, artificial intelligence making a decision, that decision is based on statistics. If you give uh, an advanced intelligence a goal, which is to manufacture a million paperclips, right? It's going to ask itself, all right, have I already made a million paperclips? And then because the answer is statistical, it can never be certain whether it has or not. And you could imagine the runaway scenario, which is, oh, well, I'm not quite sure. Let me just make some more until it used all the resources available in the local um, region to make more paperclips. Um, it's the fact that a decision is going to be a statistical thing and a machine could get on the wrong side of that and decide that it just doesn't have yet enough data, has to go do some more. And you never, you could never possibly get out of that infinite circle. So I think that would be a bad outcome. And, you know, there are people like that, people who have ideas which are demonstrably wrong by a number of 
um, external criteria, but they refuse to accept those criteria and continue to pursue their wrong ideas. Sure. Sure. I mean, it could happen with it happens as patterns as people. We we keep repeating the same loop that we learned through childhood. I mean, patterns are kind of fundamental for us. Yeah, that's actually one of the things that make me interested in artificial intelligences. Since we began this search for someone else's technology, SETI, we've been taking um, the output, the voltages from various sensors, telescopes, and spacecraft. And we've been saying, all right, is this pattern in the data? And we predefined the pattern as being something that according to us, um, nature can't do, but technology can. What I'm hoping is that artificial intelligence will allow us to take away um, that prescription of a pattern and simply be able to ask, is there any information in these data mm. not is this pattern present okay like actually figuring out if it's consistent with anything that exists in our world um yeah i think that's getting pretty close to it but just not having to predefine what we're looking for because we might you know we might be doing an extraordinarily exquisite job of looking for the wrong thing right <laughs> We should be looking, I think I mentioned it earlier, we should be looking for zeta rays, but we don't know what a zeta ray is yet. Yeah. Sometime in the future, if we ever invent them, then we're going to try and figure out how we can use them in this search for someone else's technology. What are some new questions that have come about? Example, like, oh, what are what is a zeta ray, right? If there's just something new that emerges, what are some of the new questions based on what you've found that have emerged in the last 10 or 20 years? Well, two things. One, searching the data collection and the analysis of the data in near real time so that we have some sensitivity to things that are transient. If you operate where you gather data and put it in storage and you analyze it two months later, right? Mm. You're not going to be able to re-look, re-observe validate and confirm a transient signal that lasted for a minute. Are you thinking you could follow it then? Or is there some sort of if hope you can that... look, If you can look back quickly enough, that is mm-hmm. on a time scale that is short compared to the time scale on which the mm-hmm. phenomenon changes, then you do have a way, you, you know, you do have the possibility of following up and validating it. So that looking for transients is... Um, is something that's new that we're trying to be able to do. And then again, looking for patterns that aren't predefined, looking for information in the data as Mm -hmm. uh, with whatever current metrics the um, artificial intelligence folks have for saying that's information rich or that has no information that's astrophysical have there been has there been data that's been collected that when you look back in example 2 months later or something like that that has been interesting or compelling but leads to nothing because of its potential of being transient or 
there not being necessarily like a, a next step to see like what is the next what is the next thing to look at um is there are there dead ends that you guys have found that you found in collection of data because of the timeline what we've seen is publications and claims that um signals have been found um in the heart of Napa Valley lays Somnium, which means to dream in Latin. The Somnium Vineyard Estate is an extension of the love and intensity that I pour into everything I do. To experience our wines, visit SomniumWine.com and use the code Somnium to receive a $10 flat shipping rate. Please drink responsibly. And, and it's, you know, it was a whole series of papers, not just one, but couple of authors from Canada published a, a, a long series of papers and said that there were patterns, there were pulses coming from all kinds of different stars that were the same in some sense. And it took, it took a long time and some very clever people at Berkeley, actually, who finally showed that when you take time series data and you Fourier transform it, that's a mathematical process, and then you Fourier transform it again, you basically can introduce or discover a pattern of pulses that is the result of the fact that natural physical absorption lines in your spectra due to um, elements and molecules in the in the environment and the fact that the spacing between the absorption features that they mm -hmm. impose mm. onto the data it's not random there's mm. a mathematical pattern between seeing one feature in absorption spectrum and then seeing the second harmonic of it etc mm -hmm. it took a very long time as i said Mm -hmm. to prove that these claims that um, pulses were being found were in fact just the mathematical manipulation of the natural spectra and the um, relationship between the spacing of absorption features. So are these, you said natural phenomena. So are these, let me ramble for a second here. Um, so is this energy from, a star, energy from a planet, energy from a certain place in outer space that is uh, a harmonic of that that star or that planet, or is it actually a message, a purposeful message? Yeah, that was that was the, that was the claim, right? Um, that since they were looking at lots of different stars and actually even lots of different galaxies mm -hmm. and then finding the same pulse structure that it, it had to be a purposeful message. Um, turns mm -hmm. out that nature is nature is pretty clever and our mathematical manipulations really just um, introduced a pattern. So huh. you have to, you have to be careful about that. Um, it makes me think a little bit about how observing something changes the wave structure. And so our, is, is the fact that we are observing it changing some kind of frequency structure that you're receiving? It could. 
it could and this is again um, a, a fundamental quantum mechanical uh principle about mm -hmm. observation changing the uh the reality um but these were data that were collected by an optical telescope right and then this the time series was turned into a, a frequency spectra and then understanding what that manipulation was doing um and especially a second Fourier transform uh so yeah I mean quantum mechanics tells us that when you observe something you know you the wave function is going to collapse and you will change its structure so that makes it really tricky yeah well <laughs> I'm glad there are smart people that are working on this are we sending a message? Are we sending a purposeful message? Is there a machine that is creating a frequency and sending that out into the universe right now from our planet? Yeah, we've done a couple of stunts. Think about it. If you transmit whatever your message is, however you want to, to create it and transmit it, if you transmit it for five minutes, that message is going to go past your intended target in five minutes, right? It's only going to be visible for five minutes and so right. at the target somebody would have to be looking at you with exactly the right tools at exactly the right time mm. so transmission for me has always been a long-term project and i don't think we're grown up enough to take that on right i think that um if you start to transmit you have to continue uh, and and do it for time scales that we humans are not used to dealing with, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years. So you asked if we're transmitting. Mm -hmm. As I said, there were these stunts, limited time, but we are also um, leaking radiation, right? We have broadcast transmitters that are leaking off the planet. And of course, they're not very strong because they're intended to illuminate the next county. <laughs> not the next star system, but with some sufficiently advanced technology, it might be detectable. We are modifying our atmosphere because of biology and technology. So the components in our atmosphere are, well, first of all, it's highly oxygenated due to life, um, due to photosynthesis. And the um, some of the trace gases are remnants of technology um that's our technology yeah our technology that could be seen at a distance um so we are detectable by a sufficiently advanced um civilization and detect but you know only what how long have we well we've been modifying the atmosphere for 2.4 billion years but we've been making technological modifications only for you know a few decades. So that means that there's a horizon, a few decade light years that uh, this information would have propagated. Is it impressive to you how far we've come in a short amount of time as humans? I think it's impressive. I think when you think of, well, my mother died when she was uh, 98. When I think of the changes that she saw in her lifetime, mm -hmm. it's pretty astonishing. And people, young people now, are all about change, and nothing stays the same. 
and they are used to the fact and they begin to expect and require and anticipate that things will change. In particular, mm-hmm. their devices will get faster or more capable or yeah. they will have other ways of communicating with their, um, with their peers. Uh, and they will be able to access information in ways that we never could before. And so their lives will be different as a result. Is there anybody, uh, is there someone young? It makes me think of just asking the question, if there's somebody very young with a perhaps completely new perspective that's introduced an idea um, into the realm of um, the universe and what's out there that has been monumental in taking steps forward and discovering more? Well, I think the answer to that inevitably is yes, if you limit it to what we've been doing. Yeah, there are, um, there's receiver technology that's new. So how you build whatever it is that takes the energy that's collected by a reflector, a telescope of some kind, Mm -hmm. and transforms it into a voltage as a function of time and then transforms that into a frequency pattern. Those technologies have changed. Um, there are things, just just different kinds of things that we, we didn't have before. Yeah. Can do. And, and again, often young people who are clever and come at this from a different direction and they say, Oh, I have this, gadget Mm. and and maybe if i take a look at your data that gadget can tell me something that you haven't been looking for so yes and i I, hopefully more of that will happen um you had mentioned time and um i'm always fascinated by the idea of this time space reality time and space and what is it and does it exist in in the universe and, and is time and space, the way that we know it, is that, is that local? Is that a, is that a local phenomenon here on the planet? Well, there've been some experiments again, you know, the quantum physicists love to talk about this stuff and, and try and do experiments to the best of my knowledge. They have not found any locality that, that time and space and the physics that connect them do seem to be universal and not limited to our, our local neighborhood. Mm. How does that explain quantum entanglement then? Well, that's certainly a non-local phenomena. I mean, it starts out locally, but then you can separate the, the entangled particles or states by large distances, and yet they instantaneously respond to a perturbation in one, in one place. At, at a great distance. So that's definitely not local. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how does it explain it? I don't know. I mean, I, I think quantum entanglement is something that lots of smart people are scratching their heads over. Spooky things happening at a distance, right? Isn't that what Einstein called it? Yep, he did. And he didn't believe it. But he acknowledged it. Yeah, well, but he he fundamentally did not think that this... Um, was a part of the structure of the universe. 
I find it fascinating that there's Newtonian physics and then there's quantum physics or quantum mechanics and they don't jive, yet they're both essentially been proven to be true. Yeah, it's scale, right? So at at the earliest times and smallest scales, we cannot yet make gravity and quantum mechanics play nice together, right? Mm-hmm. So you can't, as you try and go back and describe the structure of the universe at smaller scales and earlier times, mm-hmm. we see a breakdown. We, we can't carry it all the way back to the singularity. And that's just because there's more for us to learn about the physics of the universe. Do you believe that there is a theory of everything? Yes, I do. I, I do believe that there is some fundamental underlying structure and reason and physics that will ultimately explain everything. But I think at the moment we're more like um, when early astronomers were trying to explain the um, the orbits of the planets by using perfect circles, right? They weren't allowing for ellipses and they kept adding complexities. So they added another layer of circles, epicycles and that kind of thing. I think we might be somewhat in that state in the sense that we haven't figured out what the ellipse is that um, helps us to to get to a theory of everything. What will be the ripple effect of that? If you can, if there could be a way to quantify from scale, the largest to the smallest things, what happens next? Well, it would really have a big effect on the stock market, I'll say. <laughs> In um, what way? If we get to be a multi-body or multi-planetary civilization, how are we going to deal with making a transaction in one place when there are all these different time delays from those who want to make the transactions being at different distances away? Um, At one point, oh, I can't remember who it was. Someone uh, suggested that uh, neutrinos might help solve this problem if we could in fact build neutrino detectors because they would be able to take the shortest paths and go right through everything to get from what's a neutrino a neutrino is a fundamental particle um massless uh and it's produced in high energy uh, collisions of of particles and it um it was very hard to prove the existence of a neutrino, but basically it doesn't interact with anything. So mm. it goes through lead without ever seeing the lead atoms. Right. Um, and so that wow. perhaps neutrinos could help solve this transactional difficulty because they could go straight through everything and how, how you trap them. That, that of course is the question. Um, and they wouldn't have to follow the space-time paths that, that photons 
take. Um, How would they travel? How would they travel to another galaxy? Are you saying, is that what you're implying that it would be a completely. They do. They, you know, they do. They, you're saying they do. It's a trap, a neutrino. Yeah. We have these um, very, very large underground uh, tanks of essentially cleaning fluid. Uh-huh. Uh, and what they're waiting for is a neutrino to have an interaction with one of the molecules of the cleaning fluid and produce a little tiny bit of light that are then captured by these huge photodiodes that line the walls of these tanks. Um, Kamiakane Kande is one. Uh, there's another one in uh, Minnesota in a deep mine shaft. Um, anyway, we do have the ability to detect neutrinos and we can understand how infrequently they interact with anything. And so we can understand how far they can travel without being deflected or captured. How is it that we're able to understand how far a neutrino came from and where it came from, or perhaps where it's going? Uh, to get to a detector on Earth, you know, to one of those deep mines or the big vats of cleaning fluid, mm-hmm. neutrino has to um, come through the Earth's atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And although it's very infrequent, it can interact with a molecule in the Earth's atmosphere. And that molecule or atom will scatter many others. And you get this air shower. You essentially can um, map back where that ash, in what direction that air shower came from. Um, But, you know, it takes, these detectors are spread over hundreds of acres of real estate. Oh, really? That's gigantic. To capture all of the particles from the air shower and then um, trace them back. In terms of how far it's come, that's a harder question. Um, Normally, people are guessing because they will locate an area on the sky. They will go then investigate that area and see if there are any energetic um, phenomena going on, supernova explosions or anything in that area. And that's not as well defined. We can tell you what direction they came from, but telling you how far they came is harder. What about the large, seemingly large, obvious artifacts here on earth that exists that seeming that don't have an explanation like the pyramids pyramids all over the world um certain there are um materials found here and there that are not native to this planet um well that i would uh, that i would question i think all of them have been shown to be manufacturable with the physics that we know in in our local neighborhood or have been introduced from an energetic phenomenon that has then landed on Earth. The structures that we have on Earth, I think we do a great disservice to our distant ancestors. 
by saying, oh, they couldn't have possibly been smart enough to figure out how to build this. Right. And I particularly um, like, because she's old and she's a woman, this um, archaeologist who works on the structures um, in the plains of Nazca. And she's shown how, what, in terms of technology, very primitive civilizations with a lot of time can manage to do with with humans and ropes and um, really crude uh, apparatus to hmm. recreate those structures. So I think we're just, it's just our ego that's getting in the way there. We're just saying, yeah. oh, we're smart. And those distant ancestors couldn't have possibly been smart enough to do this. And have think, you ever been to, have you been to um, certain ancient civilizations before? No, I haven't. I've just, you know, I'm an armchair scientist in that respect, looking at video and listening to lectures. There's just so much fascinating stuff out there. Seeing some, some things in person, you just can't, you don't understand it. Um, I went to Egypt um, beginning of last year and it's somewhere I've always been fascinated with. And I left and I left saying, we don't get it. We just don't get it. Like, um, and it seems like, while we're, we are looking out in the universe for information. There seems like there's also information here on this planet. Do you agree with that? Do you oh, think there's I, any? No, I, I do agree with that. But I, the thing that I think is that the thing that we don't get is what it's like to be a human with a different sense of time, mm -hmm. right? For us, we have to, you know, it has to happen tomorrow or maybe tomorrow's too late. But if you're living with, um, a very long view of the future and a long view of history that I think you can imagine doing things that seem impossible to us. Um, one of the recent, uh, recent uh, photos that has come through is uh, the photo of the black hole um, and a much more vivid view of it and how really similar it was to how long ago. I'm trying to think there was like three, I remember seeing like sort of an original um, sort of projection of what it could be. And it is so similar. So what is, what, what is that, what is the significance of being able to see a black hole with that level of clarity mean? Well, it tests our understanding of physics. It's, it tests what we've gotten right, what we have understood, right? And to the extent that we're getting it right, then you'll get and he, you know, that was that was an incredibly difficult experiment to do and took a great deal of data processing, you know, years before we got that out. And so we know some things. That's that's the answer to that. What did we get right? What did we get wrong? Well, we won't know what we got wrong until we begin to um, analyze the discrepancies and 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 the discrepancies have to be on a scale that we can understand them. There may be discrepancies in our current picture of a black hole that are just too fine. We haven't yet found where our theory uh, doesn't give us a consistent result. So, but basically, the fact that we could do it says that yeah, we we get some stuff right about gravity and um, and quantum mechanics and electromagnetic 
radiation. Which is good because, as you said earlier, gravity doesn't sort of, the the theories don't jive between Newtonian physics and quantum physics. So what is gravity? Fundamental force, right? That any two objects exert on each other. There's an attraction. What about this idea of consciousness? Consciousness is something that, um, again, this is something Neil said. He's like, when there's a lot of books being written on something we don't understand, he's like, there's not a lot of physics books out there because it's just what it is. But when there's a lot of books being written, we don't understand. So what is it? What is what is consciousness and why are so many people writing books about it? Why are so many people curious about it? What is it about consciousness that is so fascinating to us right now? We're fascinated with ourselves. <laughs> no, I mean, it's the thing that we like to study the most. And <laughs> consciousness is something that we believe that is a part of us. And, you know, we don't have a good explanation for it. Certainly, I don't. That's not my area of expertise at all. But do you think it will play into your search? It could, in the sense that what we're looking for is engineered signals, right? Uh And if there's nobody out there with the kind of cognitive um, apparatus that decides that it's useful to send deliberate engineered signals or that decides to modify its environment for their own reasons in ways that we could detect, then whether consciousness plays a a role in making those decisions is in fact important. And Mm -hmm. there may be nothing for us to find because some other entity has made a conscious decision not to create it. I don't know. I mean, this is just far out of my... Neil likes to speculate, but I'm not comfortable. You said you're retired, though. How much how much work do you do now? I do um, a lot of, I review a lot of papers, and mm-hmm. I work on trying to raise an endowment. Mm-hmm. I work with young people um, listening to their ideas. When you say you listen to young people and their ideas, what does that mean? There's a group uh, at the SETI Institute and, and at Berkeley. Um, who have taken a look at what's around in terms of instrumentation, and they've pointed to this telescope called the Very Large Array in Socorro, New Mexico. Mm-hmm. You know, it's 27, 25-meter um, radio telescopes, and it's the most productive radio um, facility that we have on the planet. And they've said, okay, that telescope's looking at the sky all the time, all the time, and at some frequency. So how can we take the data from that telos- those 27 telescopes and analyze it for SETI? So they've figured out a way, and they're working on it now. But within a year or two, we should be able to make a copy of the data coming out of each of those telescopes and let the astronomers go ahead and do their normal imaging processing. Hmm. But we can take the copy and we can analyze that for SETI. So this is, you know, people who understand um, FPGAs and the other technologies that are uh, now available and can figure out how to do something new with an existing instrument in order to get data all the time. And it's called commensal observing 
sort of commensals, a biological term that means eating out of the same dish. And so we're, we're trying to do all kinds of things and then figuring out we're building new telescopes depending on the, um, the decadal process in the Congress, we may um, build the next generation VLA and spread it all over the Southwest of the U S and we're building the square kilometer array in the low frequency piece in Australia and the higher frequency dishes in um, South Africa. So how can we take data from those new instruments and use it for SETI? So we used to say that in order to do new SETI, we had to build our own telescopes and our own instrumentation because we were looking for things that the astronomers were definitely not looking for Mm -hmm. and they weren't going to build the telescopes. Mm -hmm. It's not true anymore. They're now building really interesting instruments and we have figured out it's possible to observe commensally on those instruments. We're not going to be looking for the things the astronomers built the telescopes to do, but we can in fact use them to do what we want to do. So that's new stuff and that's exciting. Yeah. That sounds like a lot more information, a lot more data. I've heard you use the example that we've, if you took all the water on the planet, we've looked at maybe like a bathtub's worth of the, of the universe. And (laughs) so it's, it's not very much. Well, what I hear is a lot of, a lot of energy and a lot of fascination with, with what's out there. And I, I sure am. A lot of people are, a lot of people are very fascinated with what is out there and are we alone? A lot of people have that question. Um, is this some kind of cosmic evolution? We, we don't know the answer to that question. We may be unique. We may be something that was so improbable hmm. that it happened here only once and nowhere else, in which case I wouldn't call it cosmic. I would call it a local. Don't want to say miracle because I don't believe that those miracles Well, thank you very much. I appreciate your time and thank you for all of your efforts. And I hope that this program goes on for a couple hundred thousand years until we figure it out. I hope it doesn't have to. I hope it succeeds tomorrow and then we won't have (laughs) to worry about funding, right? Everybody will be wanting to do it. Amen. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thanks everybody for listening to the Pretty Intense podcast today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like what you heard today and you want to hear more, please click on the subscribe button.